Hi, I'm Rachel Borthwick, and welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. Out of the Closet and Into the Pews aims to get us to understand that queer power is not inherently a secular movement, but rather that many queer folk understand their own activism to be associated with their faith. In our last episode, we discussed the narrative construction of religion and sexuality as opposing forces in the United States with Dr. Heather R. White. Today, we want to understand the historical analysis and role of secularization in this process. When dealing with the historical development of the secularization process, queer rights and equity, religion is often framed as an obstacle to overcome. Some scholars have even portrayed religion as the locator of political violence and intolerance towards LGBTQ people. However, in this podcast so far, we've explored why understanding religion as only oppressive in relation to LGBTQ identities and rights is not that simple. In our conversation today, we want to explore the ways in which queer emancipation should not solely be linked to secularism as a linear process, because in that way, it does not account for queer religious liberation. To join me today to discuss how, at a time when secularism is put forward as the answer to religious fundamentalism and violence, is Dr. Janet Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson's book, Secularisms, brings essays together by scholars in religious studies, gender and sexuality studies, history, anthropology, and political science to challenge the binary conception of conservative religion versus progressive secularism. Dr. Janet R. Jacobson is chair and Claire Tao Professor of Women's and Gender and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College, Columbia University. She served for 15 years as the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and she also served as Barnard's Dean of Faculty for Diversity and Development and chair of the Presence Committee on Online and On-Campus Learning. As director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, Professor Jacobson founded the Web Journal, Scholar, and Feminist Online, along with the new Feminist Solution series of activism research projects with community-based organizations such as the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Queers for Economic Justice, the New York Women's Foundation, and a Better Balance Work and Family Legal Center. She is the author of The Sex Obsession. With Anne Pellegrini, she co-wrote Love the Sin, Sexual Regulation and the Limits on Religious Tolerance, and co-edited Secularisms. Dr. Jacobson, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your story. How did you come to, you know, study women's sexuality and gender? How did you come to work in American studies? Did you grow up, grow up around any faith-based communities? I did. I um, grew up in a family of, of scientists. My father was a mathematician. My mother was a research biostatistician. My brother ended up being a computer scientist. But my mother's family was also conservative and Christian. And so it was kind of a balance between a certain form of academic inquiry and strong faith-based community that my mother in, in particular belonged to. And so I came to the study of religion, though, actually through working in Washington. I had, after college, been working for the Washington Office of the Presbyterian Church, and they provided me with an internship in an organization called the Washington Office on Africa. This was the 1980s and they did anti-apartheid work uh, and were part of the free South Africa movement. And I found that very moving, but I also was very interested in the ways in which religious politics, both in the US and the United States formed what was possible. Uh, so I went to graduate school after that experience in religion in part because it just seemed that the question of what motivates people to be politically committed, the question of how it is that power and interests work uh, seemed more 
important in terms of what actually happened than did the kind of rational scientific inquiry that I also had been brought up with. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you can kind of touch upon this as a starting place. We often think about secularism and religion as separate categories, not intertwined in any way. You kind of talk about this in your first chapter of your book. I'm wondering, can you maybe outline that for our listeners a bit? Sure. So this part of my book, The Sex Obsession, actually is based on an earlier project or two earlier projects that I did with my good colleague, Ann Pellegrini. Um, One, Love the Sin, was a jointly written book that was specifically about uh, sexual politics and uh, religious politics in the United States. And then after that, we also did a collaborative project with a group of scholars that worked in various areas of the world. And that project ended up as a book that was called Secularisms. And from that, you can get the idea, which is what we learned is that in all different parts of the world, the form that secularism took was actually dependent upon and entwined with predominant religious forms in uh, political life in that particular area. Mostly, we looked mostly nationally. So at, at the ways in which secularism was formed in different nation states. And so what that taught us uh, was that, yes, in fact, uh, religion and secularism are often entwined, and especially in the contemporary period, they're entwined when it comes to gender and sexuality. So, for example, in Love the Sin, Anne and I have a, a chapter that reads Supreme Court cases that shows that the Supreme Court of the United States, which is supposedly a secular institution, it supposedly, in fact, is the institution that defends the boundary between what's called church and state, that the Supreme Court, when it came to gender and sexuality, was always referring to the Bible and the Christian Bible specifically. And so that for us uh, was a particularly powerful understanding of the ways in which religiosity informs the law, even as the law claims that it's separate from religion. Yeah. And you touched upon, you know, a little bit of your work in Love the Sin and kind of at the end, you say, Um, that sex is a source of values. Can you kind of expand upon that and maybe tell our listeners who aren't familiar with your work what that means? Yeah, no, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really important part of Love the Sin and then of the sex obsession. I mean, the sex obsession kind of starts from there, from this idea that um, gender and sexuality are often taken as somehow counter, you know, to uh, moral values. So there's something called family values that are somehow not related to sex and gender, although they also revolve around marriage and family and children. And that gender and sexuality are this amoral sort of, or immoral even, you know, sinful uh, in Christian language place. And what we argue is that no, in fact, one of the reasons that gender and sexuality are so central to so much of U.S. law, and by this we mean not just family law, but also um, economic policy or immigration, schooling, you know, healthcare, all of these things are often entwined with law about gender and sexuality and, and marriage as well. That one of the reasons that's so central is because how we form intimate relations is uh, a question of moral value and how we form them makes for communal values. So for example, I know there's a, currently a new uh, miniseries that's getting a lot of press Uh, about the AIDS epidemic. And of course, people are thinking about AIDS a lot more in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the things we saw there was that sexual communities, sexual cultures formed communities of care 
that enabled people to live through or in some ways, in some instances, to have a better death during the AIDS pandemic than they would, would have been able to if they were left on their own or in the company of a nuclear family. Um, a lot now people talk about mutual aid and those kinds of things. And we are arguing in Love the Sin that mutual aid societies can often be organized around sexual cultures of one kind or another, whether it's extended families or what people call quarantines where they're building out their households in larger pods or in uh, full communities where people find ways to care for each other through extended networks and the like. Those are built in part through intimate relations and we take them seriously, Anne and I, and we argue that the public should as well. Yeah, and I want to take us on a little bit of a different direction. I guess your career has been expansive from writing with Anne and Love the Sin and then also The Sex Obsession. I'm wondering how you've seen across the span of your career religion adapt to contemporary movements or changes in LGBTQ plus identity and policy. Yeah, sure. I've seen two things which are very uh, kind of run at, at cross purposes. One thing is that the breadth of religious values that I grew up with, uh, whether, you know, sort of the Protestantism with which I was raised or the, you know, I was born in 1960, the post-1960s Catholicism, social justice Catholicism, or um, an alliance in the uh, civil rights movement among Protestants and uh, Jews and, you know, Catholics and um, then a broader sense of a broad immigration uh, into the United States, the idea that post-1965 there was supposedly supposed to be broader immigration. And so, you know, Muslims were becoming more important. Similarly, um, you know, people from South Asia, et cetera. So um, there were, there was a sense in my growing up that religions were expansive and that religious values were expansive. And what I mean by that is that they, covered a range of issues, the environment, nuclear war, um, you know, war and peace overall, uh, you know, questions about uh, the death penalty, poverty, environmental um, and economic justice, uh, civil rights, obviously. So these were all questions that were taken as serious religious issues uh, when I was growing up. Since that time, that expansiveness has narrowed so that when um, we talk about religious issues, it's almost always gender and sexuality now. So that the idea that religious people or religious institutions have moral claims to make on, the on issues like the environment or war and peace or um, economics is just usually just ignored. You know, it's just um, erased. And similarly, what we saw in Supreme Court cases around religious freedom was Mostly there was only openness to Protestant cases on free exercise. And then there was a slow opening, like maybe we would take seriously in the courts uh, religious freedom on behalf of a number of uh, religious claimants. And now that, especially um, since 2016, the last four years, has narrowed again so that religious freedom has somehow come to mean only the freedom of not just Christians, but a certain type of Christian who is politically conservative um, and often Protestant. Um, so that sense of expansiveness that I grew up with has become uh, very narrow uh, once again. And, and I think that that's uh, to the de detriment of our political life and, and of our religious life and certainly of our moral life. Talk about this narrowing a little bit. I'm wondering if we can jump off into a different question from it. You know, the field of queer studies, women's studies has really picked up in the last 20 years when we think about that. What are the implications you think for women's studies, gender studies, queer theory, queer studies 
for the study of religion and theology? And why are we seeing a lot of work over the last 20 years emerging now? Why, I guess, has it been notoriously difficult and understudied until the last 20, 30 years? Well, this is, and this is a great um, point for your question, which is that the narrowing, um, I got stuck on the narrowing of political life. And one of the things that we've seen over the same period that we've seen a certain narrowing is an expansion of possibility around gender and sexuality. Um, And that comes from social movements in the 1960s, 70s, um, 80s, uh, and 90s, you know, the movement uh, in response to the AIDS pandemic. And, um, you know, a certain opening of questions of gender and sexuality uh, that has to do across a range of issues, again, that have to do with healthcare and um, housing, for example, the, the ways in which it's now possible to organize adult lives where you're living with people who are not within your nuclear family. That was much less common, you know, certainly even 20 years ago, but certainly 30 or 40 years ago, you know, open openings to different formations about how we organize households. And, you know, I, one of my hopes, this may be overly optimistic is that coming out of the pandemic Uh, should we be so fortunate as to come out of it, will be the possibility that people will see the value in organizing households variously, um, rather than on this sort of single individual nuclear family in an individual housing unit um, for all kinds of reasons, including uh, environmental sustainability, as well as mutual aid and, and care. So what we've seen is social movements that support that particular opening, even as other things have closed down. And as a result, that's also opened things up for academic work and, and scholarly study. My sense, and, and I take this in part from a scholar of science, Evelyn Hammonds, who argues that you know, things like um, African-American studies, women's studies, American studies, um, ethnic studies, critical ethnic studies, do best when, and, and she, Evelyn Hammonds is a historian of science, so she, she's talking even about questions of race and gender in science, when there are strong social movements in support of them. Um, and, you know, she, uh, Professor Hammonds is a, an historian, and so I, you know, trust her work on this. And this has been my experience as well, that social movements are really crucial to questions of knowledge production and what it is we can know. Yeah, and you, you talked a little bit about openings, and I don't know if you're familiar with Heather White's work, but I'm thinking about you know, when we're talking about openings, how do we spotlight the role of religion in queer lives and vice versa to transform and contextualize stories about power and the history of queer religious resistance in social movements? Yeah, and what I talk about in uh, the sex obsession is, um, comes from a scholar named Anne Browdy, who is also an historian, but who talks about finding religion in unexpected places. That what we do is there are certain narratives that we understand about religion. Religion is sexually conservative, you know, religion is dominated by Christianity, et cetera. And we rarely then look for religion in ways that it manifests outside of those narrow stories. So, for example, I talk about worker centers, which is a form of uh, labor organizing that's not union based necessarily, although sometimes worker centers work in relation to unions. Um, and that are often supported by faith-based networks, which are broad, they're not just Christian. And yet we rarely think of labor organizing and religion as something that goes together. Uh, Similarly, we rarely think of, oh, if religion is always conservative, that means that it will be anti-queer necessarily. And then the ways in which religiosity supports various forms of queerness, including certain forms of um, heterodoxy, including the idea that 
doing things differently is one of the things that religions as a whole historically have been about, right? They are about, I mean, in my day, it was called the study of new religious movements, which included the start of any of what we now call world religions. But the idea that um, religious formations are one of the things that support people in doing things that are counter to hegemonic norms or what we call sometimes normativity, that those communities are part of the support structure. They're part of the structure for the imagination. They're part of the structure for people living in ways that are not the usual ways. They're part of the structure for um, the ability to address the public in a different way. And this is just not how we usually think about religion. So that's why I find this idea that telling a story as you know Heather White does about um, the history of sexuality and religion is very important. And it's not just about sexuality and religion, it's also about these other sets of issues that would enable us to see religion as a part of life um, that um, for some people, but, you know, and certainly historically, and um, not as something that is necessarily threatening to take over everybody's life, right? I think there's a lot of fear that any mention of religion will play into the Christian hegemony of our political sphere in the United States. And so it becomes very hard to talk about at all. Yeah, and I want to push you a little bit on this further for our listeners who might not have read some of your work, but you said in your work previously that the alignment of queer with the secular and religion with conservatism may actually reinforce the claims of like a right to a monopoly on religion. Can you explain this for our listeners, maybe parse it out a little? Yeah, sure. So this is the thing. This The story that is told in which religiosity is necessarily conservative is strangely told um, by, you know, on both ends of what we call the political spectrum in the United States. So both conservatives would say, oh yes, we're religiously, we're conservative, of course we are, because we're religious. And then there is no need to explain, well, what about people who are religious differently, who aren't conservative and religious? There's no need to explain, well, what about people who aren't religious, right? If there's religious freedom and you're claiming that your sexual values are religiously based, surely then they should not be part of the law. But what happens in resistance to that is not a broadening where we say, look, there's all these forms of religiosity. So we can't say this is the one that we're gonna put into US law because religious people want it. Um, instead we say, oh yes, religion leads to conservatism. And we then reinforce the very narrative that makes it seem like if you're religious, you must be sexually conservative. So that means that all kinds of things get obfuscated or alighted or disappeared, they're not open to critique. That's one problem. The second problem is we then have, and we see this a lot, where conservatism and religious identity become entwined. So if you're criticizing law around religious conservatism, it's felt as though you're criticizing religious identities. That's not the case. And in fact, it should not be the case in the law because the law is, as it's written you know, in the constitution in the US is written so as to prevent any religious identity from being instituted in law. But if we look at recent Supreme Court cases, instead the way that they talk about uh, conservative Christian religious claims is as if any law that would um, demand equal treatment of all peoples is an attack on that religious identity. Um, and so it becomes, to my mind, quite pernicious because suddenly, you know, saying that an institution does not have the right to 
um, do certain things becomes an attack on identity and then becomes a sense that I'm being discriminated against because I'm conservative, which is not the case at all. And But once that conflation between religious conservatism and identity is made, it feels like there's discrimination at work. Yeah, and on the other hand of that, we also have this feeling among queer folk of spiritual fragmentation. And what I really mean by this is, you know, as queer folk maybe discover um, their queer identity and they've previously held a religious identity, they feel that religious identity crumble as they enter their yeah. queer identity. Can you connect this to any research done or anything, just any yeah. thoughts that you might have about this? Oh, absolutely. And and again, that to me is one of the things that's very um, uh, unfortunate about our contemporary situation, which is if we lived in a political life, meaning a public life, not just about the law, but um, you know the sort of broader public life in which all different forms of religiosity were taken seriously, then we would have lots of visions, lots of ideas about what it could mean to be both queer and religious because it could mean all different kinds of things. There are people who are theologically conservative, but not ethically or politically conservative. There are people who see a connection between queer embodiment and queer lives and a more progressive theology, right? There's all different kinds of ways in which you might be able to put these pieces together. We see very few of those models. They're not modeled in uh, you know, contemporary law. They're not modeled in contemporary uh, theological life very often. Um, so often there is sort of a one-to-one -one correspondence supposedly between theology and, and um, gender and sexual embodiment. And the sense of possibility then that gets opened up for individual people is lost. And people are forced into feeling like they have to make choices, right? I must lose one part of myself for the sake of another part of myself. There's nothing that makes that necessary. There are all kinds of people who over the course of their lives have figured out how to hold these pieces together in different ways but those models become um, uh, unavailable. Yeah, and Dr., I guess I'm taking on us, us on a different direction, but Dr. Melissa Wilcox kind of states that it's time for queer studies to relinquish its conviction as religion is the opiate of the queers. Um, what does this mean for your work? And in general, what do you think this means for the studies of gender and sexuality? Yeah, and I think uh, Professor Wilcox's work is uh, just fabulously important on this, especially the book on um, the Sisters of uh, Perpetual Indulgence, which again, one of the reasons that book is so important, and there are many reasons, the conceptualization and the like, but one of the reasons it's so important is that it's documenting a way of being queer and religious and religiously queer. I think that the more of that we might have available to us, that's one of the things that scholarship can do, which is you know, here's a movement that began, you know, some decades ago, but not, you know, within our lifetimes that we could easily lose the documentation of and lose sight of without scholarship. And uh, so for me, one of the things that, that we can do as scholars, and one of the things that I tried to do in my work, uh, especially the work that I did when I was director of the Burns Center for Research on Women, is document activist projects that have real import uh, for how we think as well as for what we do in practice that sometimes, you know, become uh, ephemeral and lost, you know, currently, for example, one of the things I talk about at the end of uh, the sex obsession is about abolition movements and what they might mean. What's the relationship between abolition and housing? What's the relationship between abolition and an end to incarceration? But what else does abolition open up as, as um, a possible politics? There's a lot of activism around this right now. Um, and that may open up these 
big vistas, or it may, as sometimes happens with social movements, uh, be forced to become much more narrow and, and forced into a track. And we see arguments about this right now that's somehow about reforming criminal justice, criminal legal system, um, and isn't the broad expansive movement that people are talking about right now. You know, with domestic violence, similarly, there's been a, just a lot of work done over the past 30 years about ways to address domestic violence, to take it seriously, to take seriously that the violence that is done to people in intimate relationships is wrong without responding to it with the corollary violence of the secular state and, and the police force and, and the entire apparatus of incarceration that goes with that. Um, you know, these are important things to document. Um, and the people who are working on them, you know, they don't have time to write books. Sometimes they do, but mostly that's not what they're doing. Um, and so we as scholars can do something very important. And that's part of what I try to do is connect you know, these questions we've been talking about, about queer studies and religion to these activist movements that I also participated in. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about more the relationship, I guess, between social change or movements and, you know, religiously inspired movements. Why do we tend to characterize social movements or queer movements as something that has to be in opposition to religion? And what does it mean for a movement to be queer and religious? Yeah, well, and it means a lot of different things for a movement to be queer and religious. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of a book by um, David Seitz, um, who teaches at Harvey Mudd, that is about a, um, a MCC congregation in Canada that took up a major project vis-a-vis -vis immigration and refugees. Um, and it was a queer congregation, and yet the issue they took on was not just gender and sexuality, but was about expanding who was able to live in Canada. Um, and it's that kind of mixing up of the usual story, mixing up of the usual presumed uh, set of attributes that I think can really help people. Because one of the things is that life is complicated, you know, issues are complex and people have many commitments and um, uh, desires, hopes, you know, visions for what's possible in the future. And being able to connect queerness and religiosity is one thing, being able to connect queerness and religiosity and a hope that we could stop, um, you know, the negative effects of climate change and institute climate justice, right? Those things can actually go together. Um, and that's one of the things that, that I think this moment, the good of this moment, uh, even as we face what sometimes feels, especially well, with the pandemic and its inequities, very dire, the good of this moment is that possibility of, oh, we could sort of let down this sense that there are clear lanes and everybody's in these individual lanes and you know, um, you know, climate change is different than housing, is different than queerness, is different than religiosity, and just feel like people can, make the world that they want to see in action in, in ways that are unexpected, that are queer in that way, not, not just in terms of gender and sexuality, but in the sense of they put things together unexpectedly. They put things together in ways that are counter hegemonic or uh, non-normative, however you want to think about it. And we've talked a little bit about power. I'm wondering, as a scholar or, you know, someone who writes a lot of different academic work, how do we move forward to focus on creating a, an approach to lived religion and queer religion that accounts for networks of power that exist in other um, identities, whether that be socioeconomic status, gender, race. And what I mean really by this is that often in religious studies, when we talk about queer people, we often focus on white, gay, Western men. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to move away from that story? 
I mean, for me, in the sex obsession, I'm very dedicated, first of all, to intersectional analysis. I mean, as I started out, you know, when I, my own political education was in um, the context of the movement to free South Africa and uh, from the apartheid regime, and that was focused on anti-racism, yes, absolutely, um, but it was also focused on questions of transnational power. The South Africa at the time was used as um, a pawn in various Cold War struggles for power. Um, and it also had uh, a lot to do with questions of economics and the ways in which uh, racism was used to enrich white people and impoverish um, black people or um, uh, black and brown people. And it also had a lot to do with gender and sexuality. The South African constitution was the first constitution in the world to put into its um, original statements, um, some forms of sexual liberation, you know, and, and that may have been aspirational, but it was still very, very important. And so that intersectional analysis has been part of what I have understood from the beginning. But the question of how best to conceptualize that in a way that allows us not to be overwhelmed by all issues and focus on, you know, sort of what I talk about, the ground, what's right in front of you, what ground do you stand on? Um, and that includes, you know, acknowledgement of the ground that most of us in the United States um, uh, live and work on, which uh, is in some way Native American ground. And it also means uh, acknowledging what's right in front of you. What does the community directly around you need? So my university, Barnard College, Columbia University, is in New York City. It's in a particular neighborhood in New York City. What does it mean to engage with people who live and work around there? And that raises a particular set of issues. Um, and it, that makes it dynamic though. And so what I talk about is a kaleidoscopic approach, the ability to bring something into focus, um, recognizing the way in which whatever that is, um, uh, I'm working on, for example, a housing project on a public housing in New York City because it's the last um, largest um, public housing, housing stock in the country. It's always under threat. And yet we also need more housing stock all over the place. So that's like right in my city. Um, and it involves gender and sexuality and um, race and poverty and also, you know, uh, religion and, and the infrastructure that religion provides. All of those things are part of that issue. But the kaleidoscope allows me to both focus on housing and recognize all of the, um, the pattern of issues that make public housing what it is, which is to say, not viewed as a public good, but rather treated as some kind of problem. Uh, when the thing we need is housing, we have housing, and yet we treat it as a problem rather than a solution. Wow, yeah, thank you, Dr. Jacobson, for joining us today. I think that is a perfect point to finish. I just want to say thank you for your scholarship and for your time today. Thank <laughs> you.